0: Welcome to the Accelerate America podcast, brought to you by Emerson. My name is Michael Gary. I'm the editor of Accelerate America. I'm joined by my colleague in Portland, Oregon, Derek Hamilton. Hi, Derek. Hi, Michael. How are you today? Excellent. In this month's Accelerate America podcast, we will discuss some key articles from the January 2018 edition of the magazine which is available at AccelerateNA.com. Print copies will be mailed to subscribers and distributed at the AHR Expo in Chicago next week. AHR Expo will be one of our topics of discussion. We'll also talk about Derek's opinion piece and the 2018 predictions by industry stakeholders. We'll also take a look at next week's AHR Expo and finish with a chat about our cover story on CO2 heat pump water heaters. We'll also hear from Charlie Rogers of the City of Seattle's Office of Housing, which is behind the installation of these water heaters at low-income apartments in Seattle. So we'll start off talking about the excellent opinion piece that Derek, who is our Vice President of Business Development and Technical Editor of Accelerate America, great article he wrote called A Tale of Two Sectors. By that, he means that spending on refrigeration equipment by food retailers dropped last year, while the industrial refrigeration market did very well. In both sectors, though, the technology behind uh, natural refrigerant systems continues to advance. So, Derek, let's talk about the reasons for this disparity.
1: Yeah, thanks, Michael. Uh, What I've done here with this uh, short article is is highlight a few trends that we've seen throughout 2017. And of course, at Shekel, we keep an eye on the market around the world. And I wanted to speak here specifically to some trends that we're seeing in the US market. Now, looking at food retail, we have heard from a lot of our partners that spending on uh, food retail refrigeration equipment um, was slightly down in 2017. And we do see a a number of reasons for that. The first thing which I haven't really spoken to in the article is the fact that there has been a trend in the food retail industry in the US to move towards a lot of more uh, smaller format stores. And of course, with the smaller format stores, uh, you have some, some changes in system architecture um, and, and the change to the smaller format stores is, of course, driven by um, the, the needs of the consumer and, and, and uh, the way that the, the market for food retail is changing. Now, the, the thing I have spoken to in this article was something that, that made the headlines in the latter part of the year. Um, and that was the the, the purchase, uh, Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods Market, and what we have been seeing and hearing is that this purchase has really made the food retail industry sit up and, and take note. Um, I think such a big company as Amazon taking an interest in, in, in food retail and uh, Purchasing at a company like Whole Foods Market um, does uh, throw some uncertainty into the mix and uh, it does leave food retailers wondering how much of their business may be driven by online sales or perhaps some some version of online selling such as click and collect. So um, I do think that that this purchase, um, the acquisition, um, has really put some uncertainty in the minds of food retailers, um, and that combined with the, the the changing way in which people shop, and this really is leading to to people holding back on their infrastructure spending, uh, and of course that is feeding through into uh, the, the the refrigeration equipment part of that.
0: Right. Yeah, it's complicated. Um, we also you also talked about the strong p- economy, meaning more. Uh, people eating out in restaurants maybe and spending less in, in supermarkets.
1: That's right Michael, the economy has been very strong and we know that unemployment in the US is at the lowest level it's been for uh, nearly 20 years. Um, so that um, also is contributing to to a very strong economy. Um, now, so, Some people might be surprised that in such a, such strong economic times, Um, that that food retailers are are decreasing their infrastructure spending. But actually, um, what I've proposed here is that the reason could be that during this period of the economy being strong and unemployment being low, that we may be seeing less spending uh, on food retail because uh, people have more disposable income and are deciding to eat out a little bit more. So that's uh, one of the reasons I've proposed um, why we might be seeing um, this decrease in in food retail infrastructure spending.
0: Right, and in industrial, one of the uh, trends we're seeing that may be driving some of the uh, spending is low-charge ammonia technology that uh, people are attracted to due to the Obviously less less charge, greater safety and less regulatory.
1: Now on the flip side, uh, one of the things we're seeing uh, because of the strong economy in the industrial sector, 2017 was a, a very strong year. and uh, a lot of the industry players, um, manufacturers, uh, contractors and consultants, they're uh, reporting that they, they have uh, a lot of work, uh, on the books going into 2018. So, um, you know, 2017 and going into 2018 is reported as, as being a, a really good year um, in the industrial sector. Uh, and, you know, across the board, we're seeing investment um, in uh, upgrading of facilities and uh, the, uh, the building of new facilities, for uh, food manufacture and and processing and and handling. So um, this is where the the discrepancy lies that we're talking about uh, this very strong year for the industrial sector at the same time that uh, the food retail sector have really scaled back uh, on their spending. Now, the other thing um, I've noted in this article is that um, 2017 was also a really exciting time when it comes to the technology being used in in these various sectors. Uh, And and one of the examples we can give is uh, the the use of transcritical CO2 rack technology, which has been developed for the food retail market, but we're now seeing it being scaled up Uh, for use in industrial applications. So that's uh, something that is really interesting and uh, it's a trend that we will be keeping an eye on throughout 2018.
0: Right, it's a uh, comparison of low charge ammonia and no no charge ammonia being carbon dioxide. Um, And uh, yeah, so that'll be interesting. Um, And of course, we're seeing some crossover as you say, crossover of transcritical CO2 from the supermarket side to the industrial side, and then similarly crossover of um, low-charge ammonia in the form of uh, ammonia CO2 uh, crossing from industrial over to supermarket.
1: Yeah, Michael, I don't know if I'd say that the advent of low-charge ammonia has really been driving spending, but certainly uh, this is a technology which is is causing a bit of a buzz in the industrial market. And, uh, you know, I say it might not be driving spending because, you know, I do think that these um, end-users would be investing in uh, their refrigeration equipment anyway. What low-charge does... is give them another option, and as you rightly say, an option which um, in some cases will will attract uh, less of a a regulatory burden depending on on the systems they have in use already, Um, and of course there's the enhanced uh, safety that comes along with a a lower ammonia charge, Uh, and more and more coming into this debate as well. Uh, we're, we're talking about the fact that, that low-charge ammonia systems are um, often easier to service. and um, So the service and maintenance of these systems is uh, simplified, um, and, and that can help to ease the burden on uh, refrigeration technicians um, and, and this is something that that, that could help to solve um, the, the ongoing challenge the industry has uh, relating to the, the, the availability of uh, trained maintenance staff uh, for ammonia systems. Now the other thing uh, that, that the advent of low charge ammonia is doing is allowing ammonia to be considered for applications where it, it would not normally be considered. So, for example, um, a low-charge ammonia system can be used in a food retail setting as the high side of a cascade system, perhaps with a pumped secondary CO2 on the low side um, or some other configuration of CO2 which is distributed throughout the store. Now, what we know is that this type of system with an ammonia high side and can be used in a very safe manner in a food retail environment, and this is driven by the fact that the amount of ammonia being used is, is relatively small, um, and, and so the, the risk associated is very low, and added to that, the ammonia is contained within um, one, one particular space, uh, generally either um, a machinery room or um, on the roof of the building, if uh, package systems are being used. Now, in talking about package systems, um, you know the, the, this move to low charge and to packaged ammonia systems is also um, leading to ammonia being considered more and more for um, HVAC type applications. And while um, I don't see that we'll see very small scale HVAC from from ammonia, although I, I would love to be proved wrong, range of something like uh, 50 tonnes through to uh, several hundred tonnes, perhaps three or four hundred tonnes capacity. And that would be uh, both in the air-cooled um, design and with the uh, water-cooled designs. Uh, and in all cases, of course, that, that would be uh, minimising the, the ammonia charge um, using the, the various low-charge Components uh, and c- control strategies um, that are being developed at the moment.
0: Right. Yeah, we've written about um, many of these applications, like the Piggly Wiggly ammonia CO two cascade system in the in their store in Georgia supermarket, and um, of course we just uh, wrote about the Campbell soup installation of the ammonia chiller for h for air conditioning um, purposes. Okay, so now let's talk about the um, 2018 predictions that were made by key stakeholders uh, in the industry, and one of them uh, is uh, Pete Lepchat of Henningsen Cold Storage, which in fact is planning to install a CO2 transcritical system uh, in a new plant uh, this year, 2018. And Pete told me that he predicts increasing momentum towards CO2 systems, both subcritical and transcritical, and to a lesser extent towards low charge ammonia in new construction. Uh, Tristan Coffin of Whole Foods Market uh, s- said that the needle has already begun to move on ejector technologies and advanced control strategies for CO2 transcritical and. He says that with the right design strategy, my hope is we can keep these systems from ever going transcritical as the ambient temperature rises. So, yeah, I think the um, ejectors, which just uh, made it an entrance into the North American marketplace in the last year or so, uh, will continue to, to uh, find installations uh, in 2018, and, and that will continue to Expand the uh, map for tr- transcritical CO two. What do you think? Yeah, that
1: that's something we, we've seen. Uh, you know, we we've spoken a lot in 2017 about the use of ejectors in transcritical CO two systems. Of uh, and, and that's talking about various architectures. But what we do know is that ejector technology can lead to significant efficiency improvements and that uh, this can help to push that CO2 border further south into warmer climates and really um, bring the efficiency of CO2 um, alongside or even better than um, some of the um, synthetic alternatives that are out there. Um, And and also what's quite exciting for me and and something that we touch on in a different article in uh, this edition of Accelerate America is the use of um, other associated energy efficiency technologies, which can help to boost the efficiency of these systems even further. And uh, one of the technologies that we, we mention uh, in, in this month's edition is uh, the Sky Cool technology, um, which is essentially helping to reject heat into the upper atmosphere. And uh, if you read that article, you can learn a bit more about it. But this is another technology which can be used um, really with any refrigeration system, but specifically when looking at transcritical CO2, it's another associated um, efficiency enhancement, which can really help to uh, make these uh, systems attractive, even in uh, warmer climates. Another thing that I think is worth uh, pointing out is that uh, oftentimes with uh, the move towards natural refrigerants and the move away from synthetic refrigerants, we see that companies who have their headquarters uh, in Europe are often ahead of the game when it comes to uh, setting a corporate strategy that moves them towards natural refrigerants. Now, obviously, for companies headquartered in Europe, that is driven by the fact that Europe are further ahead when it comes to uh, the regulations which are uh, phasing down um, HFCs and, and specifically talking there about the F gas regulations. But when we see these European companies who have the experience in Europe then um, rolling out that strategy to their uh, US based uh, operations um, ahead of time. When it comes to the the US phase out of HFCs, I think that's a very strong message because here are companies who have the experience of refrigerant phase out in Europe. They have invested in new technology and and they have tried and tested that technology and they are happy enough with the results and comfortable enough with the, the technology that they're rolling it out to their US based operations before the regulations demand it. So I think that's a a very interesting point to note and, uh, again, something that that we'll be keeping an eye on. The other point you mentioned there, Michael, is um, the the comments that that came from Pete Lepchat of Henningsen Cold Storage. And, of course, we reported uh, just last month um, on Henningsen's plans to install a transcritical CO2 system at their new refrigerated warehouse facility in Washington state. Uh, Now that's obviously a very exciting development, Um, Henningsen Cold Storage along with their contracting partner Permacold Engineering, um, they have really been been pushing the envelope in terms of uh, looking at a, a centralized ammonia system design, but really optimizing those ammonia systems to to make them um, as efficient as possible um, with the lowest ammonia charge possible. So that's an an example where they've they've stuck with a central plant design, but really optimized it through uh, a clever and and deliberate design to um, minimize the ammonia charge. Now, with that experience, they've decided to try um, a transcritical CO2 package. And that is that's a, a very exciting development. Um, what What's interesting for me is that this is a, an installation that that is in a, a relatively um, temperate climate. Um, Washington, of course, um, has has a fairly mild uh, um, season for most of the year, um, although it does get pretty hot in summer. Um, but having spoken to Pete, um, he they do expect that this system will operate um, in, in subcritical mode for the the majority of the year Um, and we'll we'll be looking forward, um, as that installation progresses, we'll be looking forward to hearing more from Henningsen and and from Permacold and and from the manufacturer of the system as well, Carnot Refrigeration. Uh, We'll be excited to hear more about how um, this installation stacks up in terms of capital cost. Um, versus um, some of the alternatives that were considered. And uh, once it's up and running next summer, we'll be looking to see how, how this system performs. And we can expect that um, Henningsen will be reporting on the energy performance of this building uh, in, in the same way that they have done for some of their previous installations. So uh, we'll be looking forward to reporting on that next year.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking to Pete Later this year, uh, once that, once that uh, plant is uh, up and running. And um, we also, in our predictions article, we heard from some other folks about CO2. Uh, Todd Ernest, who's CEO of a contractor called Climate Pros uh, in the Chicago area, he said a few of his customers who were using some CO2 are making indications they may be moving into CO2 across the board very soon. So that's encouraging. Um, Jeff Gingras, uh, president of Systems LMP up in Canada, uh, points out that Canadian market uh, in particular, um, p- perhaps even more than the U.S. market, has adapted uh, these CO2 technologies. Um, many of his quotes for commercial and industrial are coming, uh, are based on CO2 also uh, Andre Patanaud of Emerson uh also pointed out Canadian supermarkets are moving ahead with transcritical CO2 and he said US supermarkets with European ownership in particular such as the uh Ahold Delhaize company will continue to move forward with CO2 systems. Right probably uh one of the best examples of that is Aldi um which is Gotten a lot of experience in Europe with CO two transcritical, and they're now the leading user of transcritical CO two in the United States. Uh, they've uh, we wrote about them in our September 2017 issue, and they're continuing to expand their their uh, rollout. Um, a few other uh, predictions I wanted to mention um, uh, in the terms of uh, propane: um, Marek Ziglazinski of uh, Embraco. Uh, Says that in 2018, he sees the growth of R290 applications in small size applications. Um, that's because the bigger uh, cabinets and uh, you know and so on are, are waiting for the charge limit to be increased. Of course, he's on the committee, the IEC committee that's working on increasing that charge limit, and so we should see progress with the charge limit uh, this this year. Um and then uh Charlie Hahn of True um points out that he you know that his company's gonna to continue to increase its sales of R two ninety. So that R two ninety will be um certainly it was big news last year and it'll be even bigger news this year, I think, as the rollouts continue. Yeah. Yeah, A two L and A three charge limits uh being looked at. Um yeah, uh in fact um that's actually one of the going back to your piece uh why the supermarket industry um may not have been as robust in sales uh, of refrigeration equipment of natural refrigerant equipment is is very is is actually because of that ruling uh that came down in August of 2017 which uh said that the uh, EPA could not, as it has been, uh, require uh, companies to replace HFCs with um, with, with the lower lower um, GWP refrigerants. But right now, um, it's on hold, and um, the uh, as we discussed, and we have to wait to see what the ultimate ruling is, um, and the. It will also this will also be affected by the uh, ratification of Kigali if and if and when that takes place.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, Michael. And uh, one other point I would like to highlight is uh, we have a few comments here from Kurt Liebendorfer of Evapco, and uh, he makes the good point uh, that uh, low, low charge ammonia uh, will continue to 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 develop. Um, into 2018 and uh, he, he predicts a, a very strong year in terms of uh, sales of, of low charge ammonia systems. Uh, but more importantly on the um, regulatory front um, and in terms of the guidance that the industry has available, um, Kurt uh, mentions that we, we have um, already the IIAR are working on on a low charge version of their ammonia refrigerant management uh, guideline. So there's already a committee in place who've been meeting and uh, developing um, a low charge version of the ARM guideline and that will be welcome um, as I know that the industry um, have flagged up a a few questions uh, relating to how um, they should be dealing with the design Uh, and installation of low charge systems so that will bring some welcome clarity um, and we'll we'll look forward to seeing how that develops. Related to this uh, we're excited here at Sheco to be working on uh, our ammonia 21 world guide to low charge ammonia Um, and I've been working with uh, my market development colleagues and uh, we have been reaching out to the industry, uh, really looking um, at in detail at the, the low charge ammonia industry around the world. And we've been looking at uh, the technology that's been developed, uh, the way this technology is being deployed um, and, and the type of system designs that are coming onto the market. Uh, and more importantly, we're, we're looking at the market for low charge ammonia uh, and, and the types of, of applications um, that, that are being uh, considered um, for, for its deployment. So we're, we're very excited to be working on, on this important guide. Uh, we will be uh, releasing data um, in, in, to, you know, towards the end of the, the, the first quarter uh, when I'll be presenting um, the initial findings from the guide in a workshop at the IIAR conference in Colorado Springs, and uh, then we'll be presenting further data um, uh, and uh, publishing the full guide at our um, own Atmosphere America conference uh, in June. So we're excited about that, and uh, we, we look forward to sharing our uh, findings with our listeners and readers.
0: Yeah, that's that sounds really great, Derek. Looking forward to that. Um... But no, no, no question. Uh, low charge systems, whether they be packaged or central, uh, will continue to make uh, progress in 2018. So moving on, um, we'll discuss, We'll discuss the AHR Expo uh, that's going to take place next week in Chicago at McCormick Place, January 22nd to the 24th. Um, we did a preview uh, for our readers. The AHR Expo, of course, is one of the biggest trade shows in the world, certainly in the uh, HVAC and R industry. It has over 2,000 exhibitors, over 100 educational sessions, and something like 65,000 attendees um, who are uh, moving around several football fields worth of of exhibits and, and quite a few of them uh, are with companies that market natural refrigerant products. Uh, when we talked about some of those in our in our piece uh, on the CO two side, uh, we talked about uh, Doran and uh, Sandin. In fact, we just uh, we talked about Sandin's heat pump, which we're going to discuss a little bit more in detail. Um, Emerson will be featuring some CO2 products as will uh, Corel. Um speaking of Corel, they're going to be featuring this EMJ modulating ejector that improves the efficiency of transcritical CO2 systems. Um and um it's interesting because uh last year Danfoss made a lot of uh, got a lot of attention for its ejector and um so uh, it's it's good to uh, have Corel showing its uh, modulating ejector as well. I think ejector, as we as we talked about ejectors, going to be increasingly important part of the uh, of the landscape. Yeah,
1: Michael, that's a good point. And as as you've rightly said, you, the EHR Expo is a huge event uh, taking place next week in in Chicago at, at McCormick Place and I think really you've written an excellent piece there um, in this month's uh, magazine and really what we're seeing if you look at the trend year on year is that um, we're seeing more exhibitors and and, and more companies involved with uh, the AHR Expo who are um, displaying and showcasing products that are either directly um, related to natural refrigerants or are supporting the deployment of natural refrigerants. So I, I think um, your uh, summary there in the magazine is, is a really good way for our listeners to um, get, get to grips with what kind of natural refrigerant technology is on offer. And uh, I would encourage everyone to, to take a look at that uh, article. And also we, we've got a great summary of some of the sessions that are um, relevant to, to natural refrigerants. And a few that, that, that jump out for me um, are certainly there's a, a transcritical CO2 condensing unit um, session um, that's going to be, uh, the speaker there is Brandon Marshall of Corel Industries, uh, so look out for that on, on the Monday afternoon. Um, so that, that's certainly one that, that jumped out. Is there, is there anything else that, that uh, you would highlight, Michael, that, that our listeners should uh, attend? Right
0: well um the hydrocarbons uh session that uh Arthur Miller does every year is definitely worth attending f- uh for people who are are interested in uh using hydrocarbons as we, yeah, as a Yeah good point that's a very a very very informative uh, session. Yeah, he'll be um, he'll be
1: speaking on uh, Monday morning and talking about hydrocarbons as an, an as an alternative to HFCs. So that's a very right. very relevant discussion uh, for for our, our listeners. So yeah, that's a, that's a good point.
0: Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, for our listeners who will be attending the HR Expo, we will be, as I mentioned, um, distributing print copies of the January issue. So you can refer to this article, uh, this AHR Expo preview article, to get um, uh, some ideas about exhibitors who have natural refrigerant products and, of course, look at the uh, different rele- relevant sessions that you might want to attend while you're at AHR Expo. So I, I look, I um, encourage our listeners to look for the magazine in the magazine um, It'll be among the magazines uh, in the bin, magazine bins section of the show. Um, but a uh, couple of on this on the hydrocarbon side in in this preview article, we talk about uh, Imbraco um, and uh, EBM Paps. Their fans uh, assemblies are compatible with hydrocarbon refrigerants. Um, and Corel also has a. Um, a water loop system which can accommodate both CO two and propane. So, uh, these are some, some other ideas for our for our listeners to uh, consider if in, in terms of HR uh, Expo. Embraco um, uh, is showcasing two hydrocarbon compressors and their Plug and Cool, which is a propane uh, condensing unit that uh, they've been marketing the last few years. So. Um, All right, well, we'll, we're going to conclude this podcast with a talk uh, about our cover story, uh, which was very exciting for me to write because it's our very first cover story that talks about uh, natural refrigerant applications at the household uh, level, which uh, regular consumers can use. We normally discuss... um, what uh, supermarkets are doing and, uh, and, and industrial refrigeration operators are using. And, of course, that's where uh, most of the natural refrigerant uh, applications have taken place uh, in the United States and Canada and Mexico so far. But what we're starting to see, as we have seen elsewhere in the world, is uh, natural refrigerants being used in household appliances. For example um the Association of home appliance manufacturers is is expecting a transition in domestic refrigerators to hydrocarbons uh, they recently created a, a, a technician safety guide for just that trend and um, the EPA is looking at has proposed raising the charge limit for propane in domestic refrigerators from fifty seven grams to 150 grams so that's uh, going to be a, an interesting trend to look at but our article is about heat pumps uh, sandin which is a major Japanese manufacturer is marketing a co2 based domestic heat pump water heater uh, they brought it they introduced it in North America in August of 2016 and it's um starting to uh, draw some, some attention uh, in, in the United States. And in particular, uh, we talk in this article about uh, what the what's going on in Seattle. Um, the Sandin unit, unit caught the eye of Charlie Rogers, who is the Property Rehabilitation Specialist for the HomeWise Weatherization Program, and that's part of the City of Seattle's Office of Housing. HomeWise focuses on reducing the energy burden and utility costs for low-income households. And they determined that 24 low-rise townhomes in six buildings at the Kingway Apartments in Seattle were a good fit for the Sandin CO2 heat pump water heaters. And uh, last year, uh, over the course of the summer uh, I believe they installed uh these twenty four uh water heaters, heat pump water heaters, replacing what had been electric uh electric resistance water heaters, which were much less efficient than the Sandin units. Um and in particular uh Charlie said that Sandon was a good technology because of the heat recovery rate, meaning um Better heat recovery rate than uh, than say a heat pump using 410A, um, and uh, that's really a function of CO2. CO2's thermodynamic properties making it a very very good um, refrigerant for for generating hot water, and especially um, in a case like this where there there is a lot of hot water usage in these particular apartments. According to Sandin, it's uh, CO2 heat pump water heater's first hour rating, which is a reflection of its heat recovery, is the highest of all heat pump water heaters. Again, because of the ability of CO2 refrigerant to lift the water temperatures. So this is a very interesting application of CO2. We normally talk about it as a refrigerant. Creating cold here, it's creating hot water, um, and again, it has uh, unique characteristics that make it a very powerful um, refrigerant, uh, you know, for for a heat pump. And I should have mentioned that sandin, although this is new to the U.S., it's in in Japan where sandin is based. They have, you know, this this type of CO two. Heat pump water heater is very popular. They sell half a million, not just Sandin, but other companies, half a, a million units a year. Um, so it's something that has, and it's also uh, gotten some some attention in uh, Europe and Australia as well. So it's very exciting for the U.S. market to finally be exposed to this. And actually, my colleague Derek has a personal interest in this particular water heater.
1: Isn't that right, Derek? Yeah, that's right, Michael. Uh, We we actually mentioned that in the magazine as well. Uh, I'm going to be installing one of these water heaters uh, at my own home. Um, We'll be doing that later this month. And, you know, the reasons for me doing that are are really much the same as the reasons uh, that that this has been chosen for this um, housing development um, so for me, in, in, in the same way that we're seeing in, in this story, um, I uh, w- when I got this house, um, it had an, an old electric resistance water heater. So you know we're using direct electricity directly to to heat the water. Um, and so you know, moving from an electrical resistance water heating system to any kind of heat pump, is going to result in a large saving in in the cost of creating hot water. Um, And and as we're rightly saying um, here in the story, the the Sandin unit um, is is the the most efficient heat pump water heater on the market. And it's interesting, the the very same properties of carbon dioxide that make it um, inefficient, as a refrigerant when it's um, providing cooling and operating in transcritical mode. And these very same properties are actually what leads to it being a very efficient water heating uh, working fluid. And and so we really take advantage of that um, by using the the gas cooler portion of the transcritical CO2 circuit and using that to to heat the water. Um, A couple of other interesting design features of this uh, heat pump that really attracted me to it. Um, you know, some some water heating heat pumps uh, are, are installed on top of the water tank and uh, they may need uh, fresh air from the outside to, to, to be ducted to the unit um, for for the unit to work um, if we're talking about an air source heat pump. Um, in this particular case, what Sandon have done, and, you know, re- recognising that c o two um is not often um very familiar to some of the installers that that would be working in a a, a domestic h v a c scenario uh sandon have decided to to keep all of the c o two within the factory built uh, heat pump unit and that unit is is located outdoors so so the air source heat pump and the gas cooler are all all located in the unit. Uh, and and that's located outdoors. Um, So the installer does not have to do anything with the CO2 circuit. It's fully assembled and pre-charged. What they do is is they lay that unit outside the the property, and then they run the cold water supply to the unit and the hot water return that goes back to the tank. Um, And the 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 sand and heat pump itself has a, a small circulation pump that pumps the water um, around the loop that, that takes cold water from the tank and, and sends hot water back to the tank. Um, so for me, that, that was a really interesting um, thing that I learned as I started uh, researching the Sandin unit. Now, the second thing is that the, the, the unit is supplied with its own specially designed water tank. Um, and it's I think they, they say the tank has a 15-year warranty, um, which was one of another reason why I wanted to install this system uh, at my own place, um, because it's a it's a glass lined uh, stainless steel tank, so so corrosion really um, is not an issue with with that tank design. Um, and 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 another interesting thing is what Sandin do with their control system is that they rely on stratification of the hot and cold water in the tank. So what they'll do um, is they'll run the heat pump and they'll fill the fill the tank with, with hot water and that's drawing the coldest water from the bottom, heating it um, in the heat pump and then sending it back to the top of the tank. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll fill the entire tank with hot water and then they'll switch off the heat pump. And then what they do is they wait until the hot water is depleted from the tank before they, they start the heat pump again. And what this means is it can run um, at its most efficient point, always taking the coldest water from the tank. Um, and also the, the what's key there is that the high first hour rating of the sanding unit is, is really important there because it can generate a lot of hot water in a relatively short time compared to other heat pumps it just makes it really ideal for this type of a- application so you know for me for me personally looking at my my, my own home um I, I wanted a heat pump for my water heating and i, and I didn't want uh, an hfc based heat pump of course so uh, this was really a an obvious option for me and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to being installed uh, hopefully later this month
0: yeah, you should be able to save quite a bit on your on your electric bill. Um, yeah. In fact, many of what, uh, the reasons you stated are precisely the reasons that Charlie Rogers gave for selecting um, the uh, Sandon unit for the uh, Kingway Apartments in Seattle. But uh, getting back to the energy efficiency, um, he actually said that um, uh, he calculated or he's estimated that the 24 heat pump water heaters at these apartments will save 81,500 kilowatt hours per year compared to the previous electric resistance water heater. And that equates to about a $300 per year savings to each family using the uh, unit. And that's important for the, particularly for low income folks, um, He said that the energy factor for the Sandin unit is 2.9 compared to an energy factor of 1.0 for electric resistance units. So that means that Sandin should be using one-third as much energy.
1: Obviously, uh, a huge savings. Yeah, and I I calculated something similar uh, looking at this. And this is actually uh, something that that's, uh, you know, widely available to anyone who who wants to do the research, but, you know, if you, if you use an electric resistance water heater, um, as millions of homes in America do, um, then you're probably paying in the region of three dollars for every 100 gallons of, of hot water. Um, Now, for, for, for the, the sanding unit, um that that number is much lower and well for any heat pump it's much lower, but sandin um promised that that would be the lowest um of of anything on the market and they're looking at something like um, seventy cents per um one hundred gallons of of hot water so so that's um it's actually more than sorry it's less than one third of the of the running cost which is which is quite exciting
0: yeah the um the one challenge that uh, Charlie acknowledged uh, to the system is its higher cost, and you'll be hearing from Charlie himself um, uh, as part of this podcast. Um, he said that the price of the sand unit was about $3,000, uh, 5500 with everything included, which is about twice uh, that of a standard water heater, he said. But uh, he added that in this application, with very large family sizes, so much hot water use, and much greater energy savings, we were—he was able to justify the cost. So, of course, we're in the very early days of this uh, unit being sold in um, North America, and with greater volume, I would imagine the prices will uh, will uh, decrease. But um, it certainly uh, seems to be worth the investment at this point.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think the first cost is always going to be a challenge with this type of technology. And it was interesting, um, I sat in on a training session that Sandin were running for um, a local HVAC uh, distributor um, based uh, just just north of here in Vancouver Washington and uh, it was interesting to be there and to listen to some of the questions that come from the HVAC installers um, and really when you think about their business and um, they have a business where they want to be installing equipment they want to go to their job site they want to install the equipment they want it to be running, and then they leave and and they they move on to the next job. Um, and if anything does go wrong with the equipment, they 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 want to make sure that um, they they have a warranty that covers um, at least the parts and perhaps their labour. So you know, it's 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 good to get a, a feel for for Sandin are or offering such a a great warranty on uh, on this equipment, and it, and it makes it attractive to the installers as well.
0: Okay, well, now we're going to hear from Charlie Rogers of the Seattle Housing Office talking with me about the installation of sand and CO2 heat pump water heater at the Kingway Apartments in Seattle. You know, well, there's two questions. Who decided to use these units as a replacement for the um, original, you know, system? Right. And you know, who, who decided to do that and who paid for it?
2: So... I did th- th- this project was mine, mm-hmm. so I did the inspection and identified the unique need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a there was I saw the high household sizes, identified that there was a lot of hot water usage mm-hmm. going on there, and mm-hmm. and, um, and there isn't previously. You know, the heat pump water heaters that we've been working with the R410A systems, mm-hmm. they don't have a very high recovery rate.
0: Now, recovery yeah. r- rate, what does that mean exactly? Just how
2: yeah. quickly they reheat the water. Right. So How quickly they replenish the hot water in the tank.
0: Right, right.
2: And so if you don't have a very high recovery rate, you're going to run out of hot water. Right, right. Um, and so if you have a seven- or eight-person household, you know, it might still behave like a standard electric resistance water heater mm-hmm. um, or maybe a little bit worse. Uh, But I wanted something that was really going to, you know, without a question, provide hot water Mm -hmm. when the occupants needed it. I didn't want to put in a new water heater and have them have less water. Right. The other thing I was looking at is we couldn't really put in the standard heat pump water heater in these townhomes because the tanks were in a small closet underneath a second floor stairway.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And all of the systems that are out there, this not not including the sanding unit, have the compressor on the top of the tank. Mm-hmm. And so they're stealing energy from the air outside of the tank. And they need a certain volume of air mm-hmm. to operate to the manufacturer's standards. So if you put it in a small closet, you have to Put a jumper duct or a passive grill through the wall, or something to to bring more air into that room. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just gets a little bit more compl- complicated. It's it's doable, but
3: mm-hmm. it's
2: um, not as easy. And then the other thing too is that your compressor is inside, so it's making noise. Um, so that mm-hmm. presents some
0: issues. Okay, so so you you chose the equipment um, and the owner. Mm-hmm. uh took advantage of this program to upgrade basically cost free upgrade yeah. that will reduce um the energy costs for, for the tenants for, for the t- ultimately for the t- yeah i mean for the building and, and and thus for the tenants who are paying the the bill right yeah. so i mean yeah. i think do you know how much they that's happened you know how much reduction they've seen to date i
2: haven't checked the bills and i wouldn't trust them at this point because mm-hmm. it's been such a short period of time.
0: Right. But your expectation was- is, I mean, based on the efficiency, you that's the modeling part, right?
2: Yeah, the estimated savings from the 24 heat pumps was about 80,000 kilowatt-hours a year,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which is high, but there's high household sizes there, so mm-hmm. you've got a lot of hot water.
0: Mm. Do you know how much... Of a percentage difference, that is, from the...
2: Um, I don't... I can't remember off the top of my mm-hmm. head. I can go back and look at my model.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but the Sandin... I was ge- I was modeling it with an energy factor of 2.9.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, roughly speaking, that's about a... Th- it The Sandin should be using about a, a third of the electricity that the electric mm-hmm. resistance
0: meters mm-hmm. are yeah. consuming. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's substantial, right? I mean, that's a substantial difference. Yeah.
2: Some other benefits to the, um, the sand-in unit that, you know, made me feel really comfortable about installing it. One is all the refrigerant lines are self-contained in the outdoor unit. Mm-hmm. So there's much lower risk for installer error. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're not running line sets. Um, they're not flaring connections. So I think the system should be more durable mm-hmm. and have less maintenance issues.
0: Yeah. And the only thing connect that that's flowing is the water, right? Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Or your electric hookup, but yeah. And electric, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's really nice. Um, and. You know, like we were talking about the energy costs. All the energy savings is going to the tenants,
3: mm-hmm. so
2: their their bills being re- reduced. The owner's not seeing that, but what the owner is getting is lowered maintenance mm-hmm. because the maintenance staff are having to change out those elements regularly.
0: Mm-hmm. You mean in a, in a in a regular
2: electric resistance?
0: Electric tank. resistance. Okay. Oh, okay, right.
2: And the the tanks are a lot more durable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Part of that's because the sand and tanks are. I think they're like glass-lined steel, mm-hmm. stainless steel. I don't know why you need to line the stainless steel with glass, but get that extra protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no elements in the tank; it's just a storage mm-hmm. tank, so you don't have um, mm-hmm. uh, the wear and tear mm-hmm. of that associated with with it. And um,
0: so, it'd be less maintenance than for an electric water mm-hmm. heater mm-hmm. yeah because it doesn't have yeah. the electric water ha- heater has those elements yeah okay what are the challenges that that you've seen in this
2: the higher cost mm-hmm. um, of the system Yeah. The, at this project we paid $5500 a unit and
3: mm-hmm.
2: everything included mm-hmm. and that's a lot that's a lot of money mm-hmm. um, and that's a lot more than we've paid for heat pump you know, other kinds of heat pump water heaters.
0: It's more than it's more than what they would have paid or what they'd paid for a new yeah. electric, the same electric yeah. unit, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think, the you know, you can expect to pay just for the materials for a standard heat pump water heater. I think they're around $1,500, and the, I think the sand were around $3,000. Mm-hmm so the cost is mm-hmm. considerably higher. But in in this application where we had large family sizes, mm-hmm. we were able to justify the additional cost because there was so much hot water use, and so the savings was that much greater.
0: Right, in terms of the energy savings. Yeah. yeah the en- and, and, the, and the money saved through energy reduction. Yeah. Thanks, Charlie. Well... That will do it for this month's podcast. I'd like to thank my colleague, Derek Hamilton, as well as Charlie Rogers of the City of Seattle. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you next month on the Accelerate America podcast.